Welcome to my podcast, Musings of a Christian Philosopher, where we talk about deep and often challenging topics of theology and philosophy. I'm your host, Adam Polstra. Let's get started. Good day, everybody. What I've had my mind on today, well, actually for the last several days, I've been trying to chisel this out, is how much difficulty people have with opinions. What is an opinion? I love that scene in uh, Inside Out, I believe is the movie title, where happiness is looking at these little blocks, and some of them are opinions and others are facts, but they've gotten jarbled up, and she says, I can't tell the difference between the two. That's That joke is rather telling, and it is amusing, but I think it's also somewhat misleading. Human beings do not grasp facts like they are as if they were in our brains as solidly or as distinctively as an opinion. Opinions are about facts, or opinions are about a moral perspective. Opinions are about your favorite sports team or your favorite breed of dog. They can be based on the objective or based on the subjective. But an opinion itself is not objective. We can attempt to grasp what a fact is. We can look into evidence. We can look into proofs. We can receive others' testimony about what actually happened during an event. But as far as grasping facts, if we even try to, and some people really don't, We can only do the best that we can. So an opinion is really a very generic term. It's really anything that we as individuals hold as personal preference, as true, factual, moral. And that is our current perspective. That is our current opinion. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, and I'll be getting into that. But this very fact can make opinions difficult to grapple with, whether that be our own or somebody else's. So that's more or less a quick rundown of what an opinion is. But what I've been thinking about is what are opinions for? What are they for? If we look at the way a lot of people behave with their opinions, in my opinion, we can be very well misled. There are those, for example, who hold opinions about things that are factual, perhaps politically, or in history. And if you question them, and I, and I, by the way, would include moral opinions in this as well, and I'll get into that in a little bit more detail. If you question them, if you counter their opinion with your own opinion, with your own set of known facts as best you know them, or your own counter experiences, they will react with rage, they will react with anger. They'll tell you that you're wrong, they might even tell you that you're a horrible person for disagreeing with their opinion. Well, if that's how they deal with their opinions, what they're really saying is that opinions 
are not just about morally right things. You are right or wrong as a person on the basis of what opinions you hold. Now, if that were the basis for opinion, first of all, nobody should really have alternate opinions. Everybody should be homogenous in order to be right. But then secondly, provided that people are of differing opinions, essentially nobody could get along at all. If you are a, quote, bad person for having a different opinion from somebody else, then relationship is rendered impossible. Why? Because you can never talk about anything except the weather, maybe sports, if no strong opinions are held there. Maybe you could play together and hang out, just spend some time together, but it wouldn't be quality time. You could never share who you are. You could never share what you really think, your perspective of facts, your perspective of morality and virtue and so on. Really important things. Because anytime you differed, you're a bad person. That is a rejection of relationship at an essential level, and it's narcissistic also. So to people who hold any kind of opinion in that way, and again, I would include moral opinions in this. Maybe about sports teams, maybe about the best breed of cat, maybe about the best weather, maybe about what's true in history or politics. If you are, quote, wrong for disagreeing with them, a bad person for having an alternative perspective, then I would have to ask that person, what the heck are your opinions for? All you're using them as are tools to separate yourself from other people. Now, what brings a person to that kind of a level, I think, goes back into such such people's pasts, what they've experienced, probably how they were raised, probably how their dad dealt with opinions, most likely in a very similar fashion. But that's not the point of today's conversation. So... Let me talk a little bit about the more thorny issue of moral opinions. What is morally right or wrong? But actually, before I get to that, let's just be a little bit more general. The person who essentially considers themselves not just right, but good for holding an opinion, in my opinion, clearly doesn't understand what an opinion is for. Now, again, getting to that, but what an opinion then should be for as an alternative to that kind of extreme, if you will. I don't know of anybody, by the way, who holds opinions so flippantly and so loosely that they can essentially be toppled over with, you know, just a couple arguments or some people will cave to threats. And that goes back again to how those people were raised what they kind of adapted to. And that's not healthy either, but essentially, suffice it to say, both extremes are bad. As I think about it, yes, there are people on both extremes, and both are bad. Look at me, thinking while I talk. So as an alternative to that, if we were to look for an Aristotelian mean between these two extremes, where do we find ourselves? What really is the use, the proper use of opinions? Well, obviously, we want to avoid thinking that you're right for holding your opinions, 
or caving to somebody else without any challenge, without any debate, without any fight. Why, why would we not want to go for the latter? Well, because sometimes opinions are about important things, as I started out talking about. Sometimes they are about what is moral. Sometimes they are about politics. Sometimes they are about history and a number of other things. I mean, essentially everything there is. What really are the laws of physics? What really is the shape of the universe? These might not be as important, but they're fairly important too. Your opinion about these things matters, even if you are wrong. It matters to know many of these things, or when I say no, I mean form an opinion on them. So the use of an opinion, to me, on the practical side, is free, spe free speech, iron sharpening iron, ideas sharpening other ideas. So you don't refuse to talk about your opinions. You, in fact, allow other people to challenge yours. And you allow yourself to challenge others' opinions. Again, going for that Aristotelian mean. And if you will do that, then what you have just opened up is the possibility of chiseling ideas, focusing them, bringing them perhaps closer to truth, closer to reality, closer to fact, and even closer to moral goodness. If you will be disciplined in this area, if you will check and double check and triple check that you are being stern about what is actually true, you're double checking. You might change your mind sometimes because of this three times in three days. I personally don't see that as a problem. Ideas are supposed to evolve. Otherwise, how can we really how can we really say that we are mentally growing? You may find out new data tomorrow. You might find out again new data the next day, which changes your opinion on a matter almost entirely. That's not because you haven't defended it necessarily, it's because you're gaining new information, new arguments, new perspectives which you must honor if you're going to reach for this this good median, this good Aristotelian mean between the two extremes. So practically speaking, the point of the value of opinions is to improve opinions. But see, here's the other part. In order to improve opinions, you have to allow the input of other people and you have to allow yourself to input into other people. But really quickly, I do want to mention, as I've been teasing, about the question of moral opinions. See, most of my podcasts so far have been about Christian topics explicitly. I'm not really going into that here, but talking about Christianity for a moment, obvious, for, for obvious reasons, Christians have very stern opinions about what is morally good and bad, and they will hold to them very sternly. Makes sense. It's respectable to a point. I personally will not allow myself to be toppled very easily on an opinion that I'm strong about. However, I have a discussion group that's been going for several years. And I didn't know quite why I did this at the time, but I've been developing more and more, I don't know, clarity, I suppose, on why I did this with the first week. I... In this group, is a discussion group, and everybody can contribute topics. But the very first time I ever 
brought this group together, which was a great night, by the way. I got, a, I think, well over 10 people, which is great for a tiny discussion group. And, by the way, good for the flow of conversation, too. Don't want anybody to just not be able to contribute if they want to. Anyways, but the first topic I simply came up with and, and essentially shoved down the uh, people's throats. Not that they minded, but it was doubt. And this is an explicitly Christian group. And the reason why I brought this up is Christians do firmly believe, if they know their stuff, that what we hold to is not just faith, not just some ethereal belief. It's not even just some acclaiming of certain values or moral statutes. It's fact. It's actual history. Now, I know the lines can get a little bit blurred depending on who you're talking to when it comes to things like the story of creation in Genesis or the story of the flood in the same book. But when it comes to, as Paul specifically pointed out, if there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity, essentially. We believe in a historical fact about an individual who claimed to be God and actually did do miracles and raise from the dead. Now, on top of that, if we do have that kind of, of a foundation and we believe in a real God, then the moral statutes, not that an individual believes in, but that we are getting from our texts, should be from the source of creation himself. In other words, if he's talking about moral statutes, if he's talking about virtues and values, he knows what the frick he's talking about. Right? Now, if a Christian actually believes that, then we should have no problem with intellectual doubts. Why? Because it should be able to stand up to any scrutiny. Right? No question essentially should be off limits. Now, I'm not saying just any Christian should do this because, yeah, there is some training, there is some learning. We should be ready with an argument for why, or, you know, to explain why we have the hope we have within us, as Paul, as, sorry, Peter wrote. Now, personally, I think that that had more to do with, you know, experiences, testimony, what you can personally say is what you've actually experienced. Because, you know, a lot of the scriptures that we have today and the epistles weren't even written yet. But suffice it to say, we should be ready with an argument. And that does take some knowledge. That does take some, you might say, preparation. But boil when you come right down to it, if Christians are really serious about what we believe, then no question, no alternative opinion, should cause us trepidation. And that, in my opinion, is really worth the test. I want to believe that what I believe is actually true, factual, and that our perspective of morality and virtue is, in fact, the best. The best there is on the entire in the entire world. And by the way, I have been about this for quite a while. And while some of my interpretations of how we interpret certain scriptures, as I've talked about in previous podcasts, like do not bear false witness against your neighbor, honor your father and mother. Those have shifted, but not to the breaking point of those scriptures, not actually destroying their intrinsic wording. 
just seeing it in a different light. Other than that, certain adjustments, which I think everybody needs to do with essentially anything, again, new information should change our opinions if we consider it to be valid and superior to the opinions we held prior. Then my end conclusion thus far in my life is that I have even less doubt about the truth of what I believe. I have, in fact, more confidence today about the evidence, the proof, and the moral superiority of the Christian perspective. And it is for that very reason that I disagree with a lot of individual Christians on these terms. Because I think that they're not actually looking at the scriptures that they're actually intended. But, again, these are my opinions. And if somebody offers me something better, a better interpretation of scripture, a better interpretation of just general moral ideas and virtues, then I would rather cave to that, or sorry, not cave to that, but accept that than not, because I want to continue growing. And again, at this point, I don't have much fear that it's going to contradict my Christian beliefs about morality and otherwise, because I haven't seen it so far. And the best predictor of future reality is what's been in the past. Consistently, that is. Anyway, the main reason why I went through all that just now is to point out that even opinions about morality should be ready to submit to better morality. In other words, if you don't just find somebody or something that claims a certain perspective of morality and virtue, but has actually put it to the test and has found it to reap rewards, the kinds of rewards that morality should reap, joy, relationship, happiness, contentment, peace. If such a person, Christian or not, by the way, one of my teachers, again, is an atheist, and he has very much done the same thing, and he's very much in alignment with a lot of Christian moral values, even though he doesn't believe in God. When you find that, well, shouldn't you be more convinced of their morals and their, vir their perspective of virtue? I would think so. If you're really sold on the idea that moral morality and virtue are the way to go, then you would, be, you would inevitably be improving yourself if you accepted this superior virtue and morality, right? So my point is that even opinions about very important things, like morality, politics, and I put those into the same category because many politicians try to make moral arguments for their policies, you should be allowed, you should consider yourself okay to accept a better argument. So the rules, in my opinion, get a little bit varied. Like, obviously, it's a very different thing if you're talking about your favorite sports team as opposed to talking about whether or not it's right to rape. And, of course, all the lines and further graying lines that go you know, beneath that obvious, in my opinion, crime and moral evil. It's going to be a bit different if you're talking about your favorite breed of dog versus whether or not God created the universe. 
certainly. But I think that, once again, is just digressing, or sorry, explaining what the practical value of opinions are. What is the further value, or sorry, what, if any, are there in further value for opinions, to have them, to hold them, to express them? To me, it has everything to do with relationship. Relationships with other people. And I've already hinted at this earlier. If you will allow yourself to be affected by, as well as to affect, other people's opinions with your opinions by presenting them and letting them be challenged, or hearing other people's opinions and challenging them, what you are really doing is establishing relationship with that person on a level that just hanging out with each other cannot do, just having all the same values and conforming to each other cannot do. Why? Well, if you're dealing with the circumstance wherein one party or several people in the party will not allow any kind of divergence from opinion, you are not in a free relationship of people who are different from one another. This is coercive. This is conformity and homogenization. The only way you get to be a friend to this person or to these people is if you abandon your individuality, you abandon your specific personality and opinions in certain areas. And that's the only way you are allowed to be there. In other words, on at least an intellectual level and likely others, such as your actions, you are not allowed to exist. Now that's a pretty serious issue. And I know that's, that's simply a way that I'm expressing the thought. But I think it holds fairly accurate. If you are not allowed to exist in a, quote, relationship, how can you call that a relationship? What is a relationship except that of being divergent, individual, separate people? A man with a woman. A Republican with a Democrat. An American with an Indian. Or even if you have all those major things in common, you're both, say, Muslims in America, in the same state, of the same political party, you're going to have different opinions? You bet you you're going to have different opinions. Is that okay or is that not okay? And if it's not okay, with one party at least... The other person must self-erase in that area in order to be in the, quote, relationship. So if we're not going to do that, and again, if we're not just going to be rubber bones and allow anybody to change our opinion on a whim, which is just another desperate attempt to, be in a to have some form of relationship, but again, you're just self-erasing on the outset rather than finding out that you're going to be forced to self-erase and doing it in the latter portion. If we're not going to do that, then the only alternative is to allow ourselves to be affected by 
and to affect other people with thoughts, opinions, actions, lifestyle. And yes, sometimes friendships will be gained, or many times friendships will be gained and lost if you're willing to actually do it. But I know of no other way to reach the level of robust, meaningful, deep, affecting relationship than if you, are, if you in fact, allow other people to affect you and you affect other people. Sorry for the repetitiveness here, but I want to be thorough. If you will allow that, you are allowing yourself to be reached into at a deeper level and to reach into others at a deeper level. Just hanging out, just spending time with one another, I personally don't consider that friendship. Again, I define friendship so far as two people mutually adding value to one another. If you're just spending time together, maybe sharing a mutual hobby or hobbies, and having very casual, very shallow conversations, yeah, they might be a acquaintance. They might be somebody who you can genuinely enjoy spending time around. But if you can't really have any genuine conversation about things that do not define you in the sense of, you know, you must hold this opinion or else, because again, that would be going into the other extreme, but things that define you as far as how you currently see the world, not that that can't change, or how you, what you believe is the right set of values, virtues, and morals, what you believe is the truth about reality, is there a God, is there not, what God is, he, he or she, if you can't bring these things up, if you can't talk about them, then who really is there but a shell, right? Who really is there but a ghost of a person? And by the way, I think that, again, as I've mentioned in many pre previous podcasts, this applies to parents and children. Why on earth do parents not allow their children to affect the parents' opinions? If there's one thing that children are very good at, it's seeing the world in a fresh new light. Why? Because they're new to the world! Don't you think their opinions are going to be pretty interesting? They're just figuring everything out. Parents who allow their children to actually affect the way that they, the parents, see the world are allowing themselves to grow in a way, the parents, that, that is, They're, they allow themselves to grow in a way that no other experience in life could possibly open up. Why? Because they're seeing the world through their children's eyes as if brand new, because it is brand new to the children, if they allow those children to affect their, that is, the parents' opinions, they're getting that benefit. Isn't that incredible? But mo I don't know about most, but many parents, I don't know, because their children are newbies or because they don't know enough yet or something like that. Granted, yes, children are children. They are figuring things out. We do have to teach them a lot. But they don't allow their children to even have an opinion in many cases. I mean, talk about the abuse to the children, sure, but how about the loss to the parents? I can't even imagine it. Now, granted, I'm not a parent yet, but I know of examples of people who allow children to actually speak into their lives, though they are 20, 30, 40, even more years their senior, 
And my, my, my. Those parents are very much happier and have wonderful relationships with children, let me tell you. Not that they let the children walk all over them. That's not the point. It's allowing children to tell the, their elders how they see the world. It could be super interesting and super enlightening. Because again, they see it with a new and fresh perspective. So the point that I'm getting to again is that if we allow other people to speak into us and vice versa, then we have opened up the gates to a depth of relationship that I think there's only a couple things in relationship that can even surpass. And again, you know, we may, if we allow this, yes, that may very well mean that we will lose relationships in the process, but we'll also gain some amazing ones. Some degree of agreeing on very important things, such as, yes, virtues and values, is important, especially for very deep relationships, such as marriage, for example. You do have to have that to some extent. But differences of opinion, even when it comes to people who don't know you from Adam, which I know is my name, fun, not necessarily intended, but anyways, allowing even them to speak and you to take in their thoughts and go, huh, that's an interesting thought. Let me ponder over that for a second. And in many cases, especially if it's a particularly outlandish idea, you may very reasonably come to the conclusion that, nah, that's stupid. I don't buy that for a second. And that may come in the co in the course of the conversation or after the conversation. That's totally fine. The point is you allow yourself to chew on it. The point is you actually allow the opinion, the thought, the idea or perspective of facts or history or politics to enter your thoughts. And you really chew on it. Once again, if you are confident about your foundations ba being based on truth and virtue and morality and fact, then you should, by definition, not be afraid of other people's opinions. You should be confident about really chewing on it. And when it comes to friendships and relationships of great depth, again, such as marriage, to allow others to speak into your life and to affect your opinions is more humble, it is also more confident, and it reaches a depth of relationship almost beyond compare. So that, to me, is what opinions are for. So, I hope you've all found this very interesting. Signing off for today.